G'day. Thanks for listening. Oshie here. Just quickly wanted to say thank you for downloading the show and uh, going to be a cracking one with Jeff Booth today. This show is free to listen to, but it's not free to make. I pay people to help me make this show, including Andy Marr, my audio producer, and Rachel Barrett, my show producer. And to help me pay those people, I occasionally run a commercial or two on this show. Now, you might hear a commercial wherever you are in the world listening to this or how you're listening to this depends on whether you will or not or what it will be for. So if you do, I just wanted to say thanks. Thanks for helping me pay Andy and Rachel and help me get this show to you twice a week. All right. So you're either going to hear a commercial or you're going to hear Jeff Booth say something profound. Here we go. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It would be impossible to see right now with robotics advancing, AI advancing, all of these technologies advancing like they're advancing, to see net new global jobs going up way in the future. There might be some anomalies as you build out solar infrastructure or something like that, but globally, there's going to be less and less jobs. You don't buy a calculator anymore because it's on your phone. You don't buy a camera anymore. You still get it for free. Do you need the job? But we're so into, no, we need the job because we need to pay ourselves more so we can get all the things. If you actually let deflation happen at its natural course, prices would go down everywhere. You would get more abundance. Prices would fall along the whole thing and you wouldn't need to be on the treadmill. It sounds almost delusional to talk like that because it's so polar opposite to the way we grew up. But if you look into the facts, that's what's going to happen anyways at some point. That is author and tech entrepreneur Jeff Booth, and this is episode 345 of Better Than Yesterday. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Washington Ginsberg. Thank you so much for listening to this show, episode 345 of the show. Jiminy Crickets, we did 345. 
Ripper. With Jeff Booth. He's on Twitter at Jeff Booth. Uh, he's written a new book called The Price of Tomorrow, Why Deflation is the Key to an Abundant Future. If you've never listened to this show before, thank you for being here. My name's Oshie Ginsberg. I'm a TV host and an author from Sydney, Australia. I lift kettlebells and sandbags. I, I ride a Zwift bike upstairs. I, uh, What else do I do? I like peanut butter and banana. I'm married. I have a, a wife and two great kids. One's a teenager. One's 10 months old. And like you, I'm living through a pandemic. And life's kind of interesting. It's a fascinating time to be alive. It really is. Every day. It's just more and more fascinating. And there's, you know, this show's here every week. It's here twice a week, Mondays and Fridays. Mondays I speak with a guest, Fridays I speak with you. And every show is just here to try and help you make today a bit better than yesterday. That's it. Something You're going to hear something you need to hear today. All right? And um, every show comes with that guarantee. Even the early ones with a big heavy metal intro, if you scroll all the way back, 340 episodes or so ago. Big, big intro, big metal intro. Oh, I was watching some metal yesterday at work. Maybe miss live shows. I was watching some Amon Omas live gig in, in Brazil, and it just made me miss being sweaty in a room full of, or a field full of people, watching a band, rubbing up against people, you know, just being at a gig, just that vibe. I miss it. I miss it a lot. Anyway, we'll get there again. Won't be for a little while, but we'll get there again. I know we will. Thank you very much to everyone that did get in touch. Send us your email at gmail.com. Very grateful to everyone that said they went and bought the new copy of the book. Thank you so much. There's a second edition of my book out. It's called Back After the Break. You buy it where you buy your books. It's updated. It's revised. It's not the first edition. There's a bunch of new stuff in there. I've written new chapters because when I when I wrote the book, the kind of overarching story of the book was that I was working my way towards getting off meds. Well, I had to get back on meds, as you know, if you've been listening to this show. And I felt it was probably important to write that because that's a reality that if you have a different brain, the chances are that you're going to spend time on, spend time off. You might have to get back on. You might have to get back off, depending on what you want as far as benefits and side effects go. And that's a reality of life. And the other thing that I'm most most happy about is that my wife, Audrey, wrote a chapter. She was very generous in that she wrote a chapter about what it's like to live with someone who's got a different brain and occasionally struggles with mental ill health and, in fact, mental illness. And I couldn't be more grateful for how generous she was and how honest she was and how open she was. She talks about living with the other Osher sometimes and... um, she has a beautiful way of, of, of mentioning it and talking about it. And I do know that she, by sharing her story of what it is like to live with me and, and I, you know, be in love with me and marry me, I know she's helped a lot of people who are also in her position. And I'm really, really grateful for that because it's super important to remember that we're not alone. We're really all in this together. We really are. As no doubt being shown, one or two people's actions Still, you know, whether they share a cigarette lighter or not puts uh, puts us all in trouble. And that's what's happening. And, um, yeah, our actions affect other people. And uh, we're all in this together. And the better we are, the better everyone is. That's really, that's it. And I'm grateful for that lesson, even though it's a tricky one to hear. It's a tough one to learn right now. So, yeah, thank you very, very much for everyone that supported me around that. And thanks for all the podsies. I really appreciate it. Send us your email at gmail.com. What are you looking at while you're listening to the show? That is something I'd really love to see from you. That'd be super, super cool. If conversations with entrepreneurs and, and people who think differently about the world and start interesting businesses is something that you're into, may I suggest that you scroll all the way back in your podcast feed to episode 
191 back to July 2017, three years ago when I had a conversation with Bruce Jeffries. Bruce is a fascinating guy. He's an entrepreneur from Sydney, Australia. He's uh, He co-founded two successful businesses at the time of recording, uh, Go Get, the orange cars that you see parked around your suburb, and also Dresden Optics, the glasses that I wear. It's a cracking conversation about disruptive business models and I guess the lessons that he's learned from just going ahead and bloody starting it and figuring it out as you go. There's a way bigger mission to what we're doing, which is to actually be able to sell these glasses at affordable price to people who don't have much money, uh, who currently have to either queue up for a charity program or do without. So we've got a crazy mission to continue to manufacture in Australia, get our volumes up, our costs down, and actually sell Australian-made glasses to the developing world and have people in Sydney wearing the same pair of glasses as someone in yeah Bombay or Mumbai or in South Africa or wherever. And, and that really is just simply about making it just an everyday, affordable, on-the-level, honest product. That's Bruce Jeffries. Scroll back through your podcast feed all the way back to 191 if you want to have a crack at that. All right. So let me tell you about my guest today. Jeff Booth is an author, a world-renowned tech entrepreneur, a CEO, and a thought leader in the world of, I guess, future economic models. Uh, you can find him on Twitter, where he's very, very active, Jeff Booth, J-E-F-F, no, yeah, J, J-E-F-F-B-O-O-T-H. I forgot how to say the letter J for a second there. God, it's been a long time since I had that head injury. It was about 2012, but every now and again, shit like that happens. I'm like, did I just say the letter G? No, it's J. Anyway, Jeff's just released a, a new book. It's called The Price of Tomorrow, Why Deflation is the Key to an Abundant Future. He goes into it in far more detail than I will, but the short definition is that deflation is the value of your money going up in relation to goods and services. We're used to... And in fact, most of our entire economic system is based on the idea of inflation, where the value of your money goes down. We go into great detail about the technological leaps that we're in the middle of right now, where those things are going, the future of work, and indeed how we might, I guess, to put it lightly, avert global economic disaster, because we've based our entire system on the idea that our money gets less valuable over time versus in the other way around. There's a lot of talk about debt a lot of talk about interest rates and a lot of talk about stimulus at the moment. We go into all of that, what it means and how you might be able to, I guess, hedge yourself against what Jeff sees as a pretty tricky possible future. Now, if you're anything like me, money talk and talk of economic policy, it is still, it's all too hard and I should go and find something else to do because I kind of want to switch it off. I would urge you to stick with it. I would urge you to stick with this one because it's worth it. And it's worth kind of getting your head around this concept because it or a version of it is an important, important thing to understand as we move into the future. Jeff's book is out now. He's also got a bunch of very, very interesting articles written online. Just find his name, J-E-F-F, Jeff Booth. I remember how to say it at that time. The book is called The Price of Tomorrow, Why Deflation is the Key to an Abundant Future. If you like him, let him know you heard him here, Jeff Booth on Twitter. Enjoy this conversation that I had between me and Jeff sitting in Canada while we were both in lockdown. Enjoy. I'm real glad that uh, you made the time to talk to me today, man. I know you're a very busy human being, so thank you. It's an interesting day to be alive. On one hand, I'm, I'm grateful that I don't live in America anymore. 
<laughs> I lived there for about 10 years, but I have a brother that lives there. So I'm like, oh. Where is he? He's in Michigan. Oh, yikes. Yikes. Yeah. It's just pro- yeah. proper open carry fun times. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, I can't control any of those things. I have no agency whatsoever in anything that's going on there. I can only read and control my own reactions. Yet, I have somehow foolishly, in changing the lenses for my modular set of glasses, mixed up which ones are my multifocals and my regular ones. And now I'm stuck with these old man clip apart dad glasses. <laughs> and that's my main problem today, Jeff. Well, that's a, in, in a set of problems, that's not so bad. It's not so bad. Well, that's kind of what's going on right now. Where in the world do we find you today, Jeff? I'm just outside of Vancouver. Um, oh. My lake house outside of Vancouver. So life is pretty good here. It's a beautiful, beautiful part of the world. As you no doubt know, many Australians have spent much amount of time in your part of the world in BC. Well, you're in a you're in a pretty nice spot of the world too. Spent some I've spent some time there. Family spent some time there. It's uh, it's pretty nice. All right. So we're I'm talking to you now from Sydney. We're about a a, a k and a half south of Bondi Beach, where we are. If you ever went okay. there, that's uh, that's exactly. I've been there. Yeah, I, well, that's, I've been there. Sydney's a great city. It is. It's it's but you know it's like every other city in the world. There's that bit that makes the city the city. And then there's yeah. the suburbs that look exactly the same anywhere in the world that you go that has a kind right. of a modern kind of suburban structure. School, shopping mall, sports field, a kilometre and a half of suburbs, school, shopping mall, sports field, a kilometre and a half of suburbs. <laughs> right, just just right. And ad infinitum yeah. until the national park begins or until the freeway yeah. or, or whatever. And that's the same. It's the same everywhere. It's kind of interesting. Mate, I'm really grateful that you took the time to speak with me today. Your book is extraordinary. <laughs> and there's, a lot, there's a lot going on. When we first organized our chat, there was a lot less happening in the world. Um, but what's happening in the world right now means what you have to, have to talk about is very, very relevant, particularly in this country where there is colossal amounts of governmental stimulus to help things kick along. So before we get going, just so, because this might be the first time that a lot of people are hearing the kind of economic arguments and concepts that you talk about. I know you've lived them the whole, your whole life, but this might be the first time anyone has ever talked about this sort of stuff. So at the basis of things, you come to this from an engineering perspective, don't you? That's kind of your background, isn't it? Technology and generally. I started a technology company 20 years ago and, and since then I've been on boards and involved in technology companies most of my life, most of my working life. You're very humble when you say I started a technology company. You started a behemoth of a forward visionary thinking uh, technology company that basically filled a gap between supply and demand, which is a model we've seen replicated so often that at the time when you started it in the late 90s, did people look at you and go, why would anybody want to order hardware shit online, Jeff? What are you talking yeah. about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, a, a lot of that happened and uh, a lot of learnings along the way. One of the things I was really intrigued talking to you, uh, you about, that you talk about better today than yesterday. That's true. That's just how I look at my life. The how do you keep on growing and improving and everything else. And so a lot of that thinking actually was what took me on the adventure and technology company and the and every adventure since then. But yeah, it's been it's been a crazy fun ride. <laughs> well, that is a very engineering way of looking at things. It's kind of test, put it in the field, see what's going on, iterate, 
redeploy, test, exactly. see what's going exactly. on, iterate, redeploy. And you never, as an engineer, you would never, unless you're, I don't know, building a freeway, which so you go like, this is how it's going to have to stand and not fall over for 100 years. If you have the ability to constantly readjust an operating system or, or a system of business or a system of living with the idea of constant improvement as, as a goal, that's kind of an interesting way to, way to live life. Yeah. And, and if you take that same operating system and, and you look at the things in your life that aren't working, you find a whole bunch of things that you do wrong, too. So it's an interesting philosophy, too. And, and by the way, those are the big steps. Those are the things that you keep hitting a wall and you realize, wait, it, it can't be the whole world conspiring against me. It might be me, the, the, way, the way that I'm looking at it. And so those are the big, great big learnings. <laughs> Mate, I did a whole podcast about this just the other day, like having the balls to say, hang on a sec, am I the asshole? Is it me? <laughs> right, right. Because nobody's right. ego wants to admit it. You know, nobody. Yeah, well, that's it's the hardest thing to see because you want to protect yourself. And a lot of times you, you, we end up pushing away the thing we want most because we can't see that. Yeah. I've heard you talk about something that I found really quite fascinating. Both my parents were doctors, right? And so they had a, um, they took the Hippocratic Oath. They took an oath to always help people who were in need. Doesn't matter if they could pay for it or not. Like that was the oath they took. I don't know where medicine is with that at the moment. Having lived in America for a long time, I always questioned it. Um, But I've heard you talk about that engineers have a, have a similar thing. And when it comes to engineering, people may not consider, you know, that an engineering decision made 60 years ago may have a consequence today, whether it be with a water main or whether it be with a bridge or whether it be with a freeway. But when it comes to engineering that you do have this in the back of your mind of like, there may be a consequence that I have no idea about that will come from what I'm doing. Could, could you kind of explain where that comes from? Yeah. So in Canada, uh, there was a bridge collapse in the 30s, and the engineers built the bridge wrong, and they, for speed and everything else, and they built the bridge wrong, and a whole bunch of people died. And it created a uh, something that they, it, was, it was later on an engineer's ring, and it was an iron ring meant to symbolize that bridge collapse and effectively say, our work has consequences. And when you think about that same premise as it applies to technology, the work we do in technology has consequences. A lot of really good ones, but it also has consequences for how our world works today. And so that's the premise I tackle in the book. And because what I was saying is every single technology company I'm involved in, the CEOs, I wouldn't be involved in it if the people weren't really great people wanting to make a positive impact in the world through the use of technology. And so what you see through that lens is you see some incredible opportunities. Some, some, so I'm really excited about all the opportunities it's involved in and you see major growth and everything else in those companies. But I could not escape the fact that technology is, it provides so much efficiency that it's inherently deflationary. It wants to make prices go down lower and lower and lower and prices should be falling everywhere. And that's a force. That is a force in our life that is way bigger than any other force. And we have right now a force trying to stop it in governments, trying to stop that price from coming down, trying to stop deflation. And so anything possible from monetary easing, low interest rates to making up money 
to whatever takes more and more debt to try to stop that force. And what those two forces combining are doing is driving asset owners and the owners of assets a wealth divide like we've never seen, right? So, and I looked at this concept and I looked at kind of what was happening. If you zoom into the company, you can see, okay, wow, this is a really great company. I can create a lot of wealth. But if you zoom up and there's only a certain number of people that are doing that against the prices coming down everywhere, it doesn't work for the world. And so I need to do something about it. So that's why I wrote the book. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So just to kind of explain, we've over the years, everybody in it, like the whole, you know, if you stand in the sewer for so long, you no longer smell the shit. You know, you don't realize that this is the environment you're in until you, you zoom right out for 100 miles up and, and have a look down. We have grown up, every single one of us has grown up in an idea of prices always go up. All right, and we've never we've never known anything else. And inflation has always been this thing that we've been taught. It's the boogeyman. We've been taught to be afraid of it. But deflation is a word that a lot of people may not understand. Could we just, for a person that I don't know, maybe like me, barely finished high school, could you perhaps just explain the overarching definition of deflation before we get a little further in? So we yeah we grew up thinking in school. I was taught deflation was bad. And people have an emotional reaction to deflation or inflation, and it shouldn't be emotional at all. Like if you just look at the facts, inflation is when goods and services go up in price versus your money. And deflation is the opposite. Your currency gets more valuable and goods and services go down. So there are different winners and losers on both sides of that equation, right? So if you built an economy with a whole bunch of leverage and debt, and just actually, instead of looking at an economy, first look at yourself. Mm-hmm. If you have a whole bunch of debt, inflation, and you bought a house, mm-hmm. say, or a building, and you rent that building to other people, a house and a building, or tons of buildings, and you rent those out to, and you have a whole bunch of leverage against that, then inflation through time will you pay back that debt with cheaper dollars tomorrow because your dollars are worth less tomorrow. And so the, you pay back the debt with cheaper dollars. And over the time, the assets go up in price. So if you hold a lot of assets and a whole bunch of debt against it, you're a winner through inflation. If you hold currency, you're a winner through deflation. So if you have a whole bunch of money and sitting in currency, you're a winner through deflation because you can buy more tomorrow. 
So on both sides of that equation, there's different winners, different losers. So today, with so much debt in the world, and governments and companies and everything else, we're trying to grow at all costs, including creating a whole bunch more debt. $185 trillion of debt has been created in the last 20 years to effectively try to stop deflation. And that was before COVID. Now it's just exploding more. And anytime you're actually creating that much debt, you're actually robbing from the future. But you're pulling demand forward and you have to pay it back with higher taxes later. And if you don't pay it back with higher taxes later, you have to default on your currency. And so at some point, the music stops on that whole game. And we're getting close to the point where the music's going to stop on that whole game. Because ultimately, technology is a bigger force than politicians understand. So the technology we're talking about is every economy, essentially, if you don't have energy, you can't have an economy, all right? We're not an agrarian society. There's very few that exist on the planet. We need electricity and we need fuel to get around. The cost of that electricity and the cost of getting around is getting lower and lower and the the sources of that fuel and the sources of the energy are getting cheaper and cheaper and in some cases are free and in the case of my in-laws who have a gigantic solar system on their roof in Queensland and got in grandfathered in on the old tariff, they actually make money. (laughs) They can run all the air conditioners and pool filters all day and they will still have a, a positive electricity bill. Now, once you start factoring that on a massive scale into an economy, that starts to change things up, right? So it's one factor, but let's just use that one because you're right. 10% of GDP around the world is in energy. And why game theory predicts that no matter what, the cheapest cost of energy wins because if it's the number one input for your economy, then businesses use it. And if they have a higher cost energy, they're at a disadvantage in world trade. But today, for a long time, no matter what you did to try to drive a healthier future in, in, let's say, global warming, effectively countries would cheat, right? Because coal would be cheaper or some form of electric power would be cheaper. And they were essentially, I can handle the long-term consequences. I need the short-term impact of a good economy. But now energy price is on par or cheaper than the other sources of energy, like you say. And it's moving cheaper and cheaper on a paradigm that's every year it gets 11 to 14% cheaper. And so when you look at where solar is today and you forecast that forward, I can't imagine why anybody wouldn't want free energy or near free energy at some point in time. Maybe that takes 20 years, maybe it takes 50 years, but the path is on its way to free. And why would we stop that? From happening? Why would we try to build an inflationary environment where we're stopping things from getting cheaper and cheaper? And so that's one part of an industry. It's a, albeit a big one, but it's additive to, to the deflation we're seeing today. And that's everywhere. Artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence in healthcare, artificial intelligence in every single, it's moving at a rate people can't comprehend. And so anytime you provide that abundance, things get lower and lower in price and abundance is hard to charge for. An example I often use is the air we breathe. You can only charge for air underwater or if you pollute it so bad that you can charge for air because people think economics is about value. It's not about value. It's about perceived value or scarcity. And so the more abundant you make things in our our lives, the 
lower they come down. And that's what's happening through technology everywhere. And that's what's being stopped by the monetary easing. We've definitely seen that in our country with data. Data was getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Like, you know, when I think about how much it used to cost me to send a text message 20 years ago, which was, I don't even know how many bits of data, but it's not a lot. Uh, It was like 50 cents to send this tiny little packet of data, one packet of data. And now somebody just listening to this podcast will have blown through 10 years worth of that mobile phone use from 1994 when I first got it, right? And in this country, we've seen that cheapening of data and and free data almost throttled enormously by a massive governmental intervention with our national broadband network where they decided to not use fiber to the home. They went copper to the home. And so, oh, oh, mate, oh, Jeff, please. And at the time they went, why would anyone ever want more than 100 megabits a second? And then cut to March 2020 when they're like, work from home if you have to. You've got to do it to keep the economy going. (laughs) And everyone's sitting around on like a glitchy 1920s movie that's moving back and forth (laughs) trying to have a business meeting on the crappiest internet connection because everyone on the planet's using, you know. It's exactly what you're saying. You know, there was a massive intervention to stop the cheapening of that data and how data was just essentially now, it was so abundant, you couldn't charge for it. Yep. Which is really interesting. And it's really interesting if you actually investigate these things deeper, like you're doing right now and my book, uh, my book does, it makes you question a whole bunch of the things you thought you knew. We build these mental models and we attach to that mental model and we don't question the mental model. And in fact, by the way, just from an entrepreneur's perspective, right, a, a engineer, entrepreneur, that's actually what you do in a business. That's why Blockbuster gets destroyed by Netflix. That's why Kodak invented the digital camera and then didn't take it a, a, at all and, got, and went bankruptcy. And so you see something that doesn't make sense. Why are people doing it this way? And you, you build to the future and where, it, where the world's going. That future that we need to build to, it looks very different than the world we grew up in. Can we talk a little bit about that? Because it seems uh, like you mentioned earlier about politicians that and people in power who goes, we can take the long-term management of this climate situation. We'll take the short-term gains. I personally don't believe they have an adequate grasp on what that long-term management looks like. This is why they make those decisions. If they had an idea, we'd be on a war footing right now. It'd be like World War II. They'd be like, right, everybody stop what you're doing. This is the only thing we're doing for the next five years because if we don't, we're utterly fucked. But they don't. So when it comes to this idea of like, you're so in it, you can't not see it. When it comes to this idea of being so locked into inflation and putting more money into the system is the only way to make assets grow. What are they missing? What are they not seeing coming down the pipe? Well, so just uh, if you looked at a, a model for building, uh, so what an economist would do, they look back in time. So one of the things would be demographics. How old is your population? And countries grow faster with lower ages, right, when people are in their prime learning years. Other levers on that are, are you taking exports to a disinflationary environment like China and driving that, and you can import those cheaper. So there's a whole bunch of things going on. And all the while that those have been going on, technology has been ratcheting up as more and more important. But they're looking back at old models that don't look forward on what technology is doing. Okay, and I'll give for your listeners, I think this is important. I've, I've asked this question I'm about to ask to tens of thousands of people all over the world. And so if I folded a piece of paper on itself, 
one time, two times, three times. And I kept folding it. I can only fold it on itself seven times. But if I could fold 50 times, how thick is a piece of paper? And you probably listen, so you know the answer. Well, I will. <laughs> I, I'm a kind of a nerdy person, so I have okay. a, a fair idea. But this is a question that tries to explain what exponential growth looks like. Exactly. What a doubling rate looks like. So, yes, I can fold an A4 piece of paper in half. That's no problem. I remember doing this in primary school, actually, and folding it again. And so it's now in quarters. Okay, that was a hard fold. Folding it three times. Now it's in 12 pieces. That was harder. Four, five, six, seven. I'm putting my whole weight on it just to try and get it done but because it's doubled every time if you double something what did you say 50 times yeah god because i was doing these sums around the COVID outbreak just going come on hang on what's a doubling rate i was just kind of i was talking about on this show going like within 21 days that's the whole population essentially you go from one person to 21 million in 22 days if you have a, a doubling rate so i can't remember the exact distance but i know it is very, 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 very far. It's in the it's in the hundreds of millions of kilometers, right? Yeah. So it, the piece of paper, thin piece of paper, would go from here to the sun. And when you think about what that does to your brain, right? That's what human beings and what you just did because you know the pattern, you would go into the pattern and everything else. But it tricks our brain, and we can't understand exponentials. And I normally get a ninety nine percent of people answer at about two inches. Right. Unless you know that what it looks like, it's almost impossible, including me, right? The first time I heard this, it's also impossible to think about that moving forward at that rate. And so that matters because Moore's law and technology is moving at that exponential pattern. So Moore's law, which underlies technology, is doubling every 18 months to two years. That's the the speed of the processor doubles at the same time as I think it halves in size and halves in cost. Is that it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, This is how our phones have gotten so much faster. Like this iPhone I'm holding on, my iPhone 11, which is ridiculous because I'm an idiot, does the same thing as the 10, but it's an 11, so I had to buy yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> but it will be good for virtual reality. Because I love landfill. <laughs> oh, no, I hate it. Yeah, so the idea that this processing chip in this is so far removed from that first phone that I had 18 years ago now because of exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, and think about the phone from that thing. Okay, so first, uh, before we go into the phone, we're on Fold 33. Of technological innovation. If you use the analog from Fold to the Sun. Yes. And you take back technology and we're on Fold 33. All of the things that we're thinking about with where technology is going is looking backwards. And we're not projecting that that doubles in two years. The entire history of that technology doubles in two years. And so now we're in the steep steps, and it's so hard to comprehend what's coming next and how much effectively deflation or improvement to our lives, if we would let that happen, is coming next. So if you look at your phone and you think, so my phone is my guitar tuner, it's my personal assistant, it's my camera, it's my music player, it's not just a phone anymore. I get so much more from my phone than I I had 20 years ago when I bought a phone, and it's all free. It's all effectively free. And what you're saying is that we're on, on fold 33 of technological innovation right now. And every single thing that's happened, let's say, and since the steam engine has taken us to this point, and we're about to double everything that happened since the steam engine to this point within the next two years, and then again two years after that. Exactly. Exactly. So if I'm a politician, I'm not thinking about processor speed. I'm not thinking about 
artificial intelligence. I'm not thinking about autonomy of uh, manufacturing processes or logistics chains and things like that at all. I'm just thinking about how can I get people in hard hats thinking they're still going to have a job so they'll vote for me. That's all they're thinking about, right? I love that you just said that. I'm going to take that one step further. In the past, in the 30s or 40s, or you had a collapse of demand. Governments could come in and they could say, let's find shovel-ready projects, people in hard hats, because we can get a whole bunch of people working. And it also has a longer-term benefit because those roads and bridges decrease the time from home to work. So they provide efficiency to the economy. So you get a longer term benefit and a GDP gain because people are less time in their cars and more time productivity. Today, it's no longer roads and bridges. I was on a Zoom call with the House of Commons in Canada. And we're using Zoom. A friend of mine is a CEO of Zoom. And we're using Zoom. And the House of Commons, there isn't one extra job in Canada from Zoom, and the House of Commons is debating this, the so same as your politicians debating this about the shovel-ready projects, not knowing at the same time all the new superhighways are digital in nature, and it's borderless. We are looking, though, at governments, and particularly like in this country, we're looking at a COVID recovery. What you're talking about the 30s and 40s on the, on the back end of the Great Depression, a lot of public infrastructure got built that has served the community for nearly 100 years. In this country, the Sydney Harbour Bridge, the Great Ocean Road. On the back end of World War II, there was the Snowy Hydroelectric Scheme. There were these humongous infrastructure projects. In America, the, the superhighway system, um, the Hoover Dam, all this stuff. They built these big infrastructure projects. And that's what they're looking at here. That's what they're looking at here as a way to get people back to work. And so that, that's the point. Those things worked to get us here. But if you believe that Zoom went from 10 million users to 300 million users and it's going back to 10 million, <laughs> then you build highways. Right? <laughs> if you believe it's not going to go back to 10 million, then think about what the highways of the future are. Yeah. And that's where you invest your dollars because that's where it's going. But the whole thing, COVID has been an accelerator to everything in my book. It's just moving at blinding speed. Now, the technology companies I, I, I'm involved in, they're winners. But I can't help but think this doesn't end well if governments don't understand this and we, uh, we do something different. There's a quote from John Maynard Keynes, and he wrote a 1930s essay that said, the economic possibilities of our grandchildren. And in that, he predicted this curve, this exponential curve in technology and what would happen. And he predicted by this time, this year, we'd be working 15 hours a week. And we'd have the benefit of abundance everywhere. And worldwide, we would only be only need to work 15 hours a week. And you'd have a renaissance of everything else. What has stopped that is the printing of money. So with the printing of money and all of the stuff that's happening is just driving the divide. So there's a very small people at the top that that's what life looks like. And everyone else is on this wheel going faster and faster, trying to chase asset prices higher and higher that are artificially created. We may not be able to see what the exponential growth of technology will bring, but history has shown time and again what happens when you start to tip the seesaw to a point where, I don't know, what is it now, Jeff, 30-something people in the world have yeah. more than half of all the wealth on the planet? I think it's less than that. Oh, good I think God. It's, uh, yeah, I think it's less than 30 people have all half. That's less than a bus. Not that those people would ever get on a bus, but yeah. it's less than a bus. So we've all seen in history what happens when that inequality 
goes on. And it's never good. It never ends well. So what happens? It's really easy to see that. That's the kind of the thing. And I, you're, I love that you're poking on this because in a world like that, what is easy, what happens, it's really easy. It's really easy to convince somebody to like you by saying, you're like me, those other people are, they're the enemy. And that's how politicians today are getting elected, right? They're creating enemies because there's so much anxiety that it's easy to do. And once you've been elected, now you need a bigger enemy. And that enemy typically is so it starts internally in countries and then it rolls up and you need a bigger enemy. Hitler is a really good example of what happened when you had this sort of disparity in income and people not being able to feed themselves. It's easy to create division in that because people want to believe. And so that's what scares me. That's why I wrote the book. You don't even need to go to that much of an extreme. It's, it is simply the playbook of how a kind of strongman gets elected is that the reason that you don't have a job is because of that. Or but worse, the reason you don't have a job is because of those people. Yeah. So in our country, very much it's been the reason that this is not going well is because those people want us to stop digging up coal. They believe in this thing and we don't. Coal's awesome. Let's keep going. Yeah. And so suddenly all these people, hey, I get it. If I was afraid and I didn't want my economic livelihood to go down the tube, I would be like, well, I'm afraid. I'll, I'll say yes to whatever you say because I don't want to lose my job. That sounds terrifying. I'll vote for you. Yeah. I get it. I understand why people go that way because fear drives a lot of decision-making processes. And then if you look, the internet makes that worse because the way these systems are built, it's not a bug in it. It's a feature. It's not trying to do it, but it's trying to get you information that you will click on. And as a result, it's not showing you other people's views. And you get locked harder and harder into your views. And when you come out of out of your filter bubble and you look across at somebody else, you think they are crazy, right? And they think you're crazy because you've seen totally. And it is really hard. We covered this when we started this interview. It's really hard to look inward and question the things that we hold most dear and actually take almost a scientific approach to the, your bias and say, Okay, at a first print, is this true? And then what does it look like? It's really hard to do. And so we get tricked into that. And if we hear that all the time and we're in that media, that's actually why I love the kind of what you're doing in your show, <laughs> because you enlighten that, a whole bunch of this to people. Oh, thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate that, mate. And it's extraordinary that on the day we're speaking, the greatest example in the history of the world of that happening happened today when the president of the United States of America signed an executive order <laughs> getting angry at Twitter for flagging him with a fact check. They flagged him with a fact check on a tweet that he made about mail-in ballots. And if that is not someone's ego going, fuck you, I win, you lose, I don't know what is. But it's it's crazy. It's utterly, it's bananas. And there's that many people who are not even one paycheck, because there's no paychecks happening at the moment, one paycheck away in America. There's that many people who are one paycheck away from having an empty fridge. They are so afraid. They'll vote for anyone who says, oh, no, 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 I'm on your side. The reason that you don't have any food in your fridge is because of those people. Clearly, that's the case. I'm here to make your life better. Come with me. And I get that. Yeah, and then it's China, then it's somebody else, and they'll believe it hook, line, and sinker because the anxiety that people feel today from that. Yeah. And that anxiety is real. Like, yeah. If I couldn't feed my family and everything else, I might think the same thing. 
you want to vote for or go in any direction that will get you closer to more money in your pocket. Totally. And and here's the thing. That direction right now is actually hurting you more. Right. So if you think about Trump in 2008, I don't want to make this a political thing because uh, it, it isn't. Both sides of the aisle look exactly the same because they're missing the thing underlying it that's bigger than this. And they're both working off a different system. But in 2008, if you let what should have happened that capitalism calls for, you would have a massive cleansing of the system. We're, we're talking about when the global financial crisis happened. Yes. And instead of allowing the very systems that let it break to fall to pieces, have the whole thing break apart and then put it back together better. Instead, what the American government did was came in and they bailed everybody out using taxpayer money. They put blue tack on the holes in the dam. Blue tack is something we used yeah. to stick posters of cars on walls when we were kids, right? So they basically, what that's what they did. They just kind of shoved it up with crazy glue, hoping that it would hold. Yeah. And actually not just them, all governments all over the world, yeah. right, did, did the same thing. It was a global monetary easing that did that. And effectively what you did, you use Trump as an example in this, and just an example, and this is not political, but yeah. as an example, he would have been completely wiped out we would have been dealing with a global depression. It would have been ugly and a whole bunch of other things. But he would have been wiped out along with a whole bunch of other people in that if we didn't jerry-rig the game. And because we jerry-rigged the game, we created crony capitalism where you socialize the losses. You can win at all costs. You have the upside of winning. But if you lose, you socialize the losses to everybody else. And that protected those things from falling and protected a whole bunch of people. And then those same people are elected, right, <laughs> that would have been wiped out. Yeah. And so what do you think they would do if the system looks the same and it calls for another intervention? Likely the same thing, but bigger. And every time you do that, you're actually picking the pocket of some people and giving it to others. So the person in Sydney that doesn't own a house, it doesn't matter where in the world it comes from, by the way. Everyone knows China needs to print more money and devalue their currency. And the Chinese know that I need to get my money out of China and put it into real estate in Sydney. And so it just becomes a store of value that pushes that price up. And it doesn't matter where this monetary easing is happening. And then that's picking the pocket of the person that's trying to save money because the money is getting worthless. <laughs> And the prices of assets are going higher. So it sounds like we're stuck in a game that we can't win, believing that if we just keep playing, we will eventually get there. But we can't because it's rigged against us. It's like sitting in the RSL playing the poker machine, keep hitting the button thinking that we'll win the jackpot because there's enough bells and whistles that we think we're going to be okay. But unfortunately, the way, the direction that it's going and with the, as you mentioned, the expansion of technological advancement behind us coming so quickly, we can't win as it is. So where do we have to get to, Jeff? What's the situation that we are, we're trying to look for? What kind of things coming out of leaders' mouths do we want to be listening for? I would say that you want to be listening to people who unite. And that's hard to do in a world where there's anxiety and everything else. But that are talking about first principles and, and what I'm talking about here. And then using that to say there is a better way forward. We can transition to a world where you don't have to work 80 hours a week trying on a treadmill to try to get something that's constantly going up in price because we created a game to make that happen. Right? There might be a better way. I would look to leaders that are looking to do that and unite critical thought in that. 
this interview is going to, there's a whole bunch of your listeners that don't know this. It's going to make some people go down the rabbit hole and question if the debt can never be paid back and there's no chance of ever paying the debt back and we're adding more and more debt, what is money? Because isn't money just something like a trust? It's a story. It's an agreement. It's an agreement that you and I have that we have decided this particular in Australia, this piece of plastic, this is worth eight hours of my day. That is what this is worth. But eight hours of your day is worth more. (laughs) And it's an agreement. It's a trust of an exchange. And if governments are changing the exchange of that trust, then we lose trust in the exchange. Yeah. That piece of paper with faces on it is an implicit guarantee. And if governments don't honor the guarantee, then it becomes worthless. And so that's what's happening all over the world. And I think that some of your listeners will dig down the rabbit hole and see what's happening here. And what's been remarkable about the book is there's a whole bunch of thoughtful dialogue, unbelievable people racing to me and creating this almost, I don't want to call it a movement, but it's starting to move into political circles. And it's hard to, once you see it, it's impossible to ignore, right? It's really impossible to ignore. So the more people talking about it, it'll force a change. I was talking with uh, my colleagues at work. I, I make a TV show at the moment. And I was saying, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, I'm interviewing this guy from Canada. And we started talking about what we're discussing and the concept of money being an agreement. And then I said, food is free. Don't forget. Food's free. It just grows. But we pay because we would rather not spend all day growing it. Right. And we would rather not walk all the way to the field to go and get it yep. and chop it up and put it in our fridge. So we pay someone to do all that stuff. And because I remember my brother telling him, my brother's right into this sort of thing. And he's like, mate, food's free. Because he's in the seed swap program. He's got a garden in the back of his house in Brisbane. He's in the seed swap program. He's like, mate, food's free. And I went through a lot of trouble a couple of years back. Jeff, I kind of went crazy thinking about what direction we're heading as far as the climate goes. And I really, I got really, really sick and I needed to get on drugs for a while. And the idea that food is free and the idea that money's just an agreement is one of the things that got me out of it. Because at the end of the day, when the chips are down, I've got a tomato plant in the front of my house. There's more tomatoes than I can eat today. And if I don't eat them, they'll go off. I can give them to you. And that's fine. <laughs> what do you really need? I think that's really comes down to it. When, when you look at some of those things and what do you question? By the way, so people talk about the tech company and everything else and how much value that was. And very few people know I walked away from that company with zero in the end. My integrity was worth more than walking with, away with a giant paycheck, even though that my personal share was worth well over $100 million at, at one point. I had to anyways. We don't actually need much. You have your family, you have your health, you have the things that are important. Start from there and say, what type of life do you want to build? And so what you just shared with me, kind of what you went through and everything else, a lot of those things going through that knot hole for me too, makes us way stronger on the other side. We learn things going through, hopefully, (laughs) through those knot holes that make us way stronger. Thank you for sharing that with me, mate. I can only think, and my only great hope is that what's happening right now with COVID-19 and this apolitical test that is being put on every government on the planet that has kind of broken away, it's taken one of the cogs out of the machine that we can't ever put back. And now we have to figure out how to make it all work again because the rules that we got to this place with don't apply anymore and where we were going there's no way we were going to get to two degrees no way it wasn't going to happen we're on track for four 
and we've got, we're in this moment where it is going to break. But I know from my personal experience, as I've, I've been sober for nearly 10 years, uh, just over 10 years now, my life in recovery is so much bigger and more incredible than I could have ever imagined. But before I stopped drinking, there's no way I would have believed you that this was possible, all right, because I was so stuck in the addiction. It feels that at a society, we're so stuck in this addiction of I have to get more stuff. I've been told that if I want to be happy, I need more stuff. I've got to get more things. I need more stuff. My house has to get more valuable, da 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 We just cannot possibly conceive that there might be another way to do it. I love that you just said that. So that is the, that's the entire point. And there is another way to do it. There's a totally different way to do it that doesn't feel like that the same work. Think about the more stuff, more stuff. It's actually not for more stuff. It's for safety or for or ego or for then I can retire and live my life. It's putting off what you could do today for one day in the future so that you can do it then before, and you might not have your health at that point. So when you think about that, decision you're making i use this example often just with my friends and or for me to see it too we all have a friend or somebody who's a victim right let's use a victim on facebook and what is that victim actually after they're not after being a victim they're after i matter love and what they do through that being a victim is they're trying to get that response you matter you matter you matter you matter you matter and when they burn out their friends because it's just too hard and that response starts coming, what does that person do? They double down. I need to be more, I create more drama. I'm more of a victim because they're desperate, desperate for that love. The irony, and it's easy to see in the victim, the irony is the hero on the other side is exactly the same person. The, the person that's trying to do everything for their business and their calendar is constantly a nonstop business saying that one day I'll have time for my family because I'm doing this is exactly the same. Love is a giant connector and we want it so desperately, that belonging love, that a lot of the things we do, so use a victim example, we push it away, right? <laughs> we push what we really want away without knowing we push it away. And it happens everywhere. And if you know that and you connect on love and you can connect on abundance and love and everything else, it's staggering how easy things become. But it's that story. It's, and you didn't know it uh, when you were drinking. I didn't know it in, in times in my life and everything else. When you realize that, you go, wow, this is, it just becomes a lot easier. How do you then bring that to a whole society, though? What is the change look like? What does the possibility look like? You know, we talked about money just being an agreement. Is it a possibility that we might end up like what we know as money ceases to exist and there is another form of exchange? Is it the idea of like this idea we constantly have to try to find a better job or constantly need a raise? We constantly have to find ways to put more jobs into the economy, you know, because that's kind of where we are. What does the other side look like? What could it look like? So, and again, start from first principles. If technology is on full 33 and we're going down this path and solar is adding to it and everything else, and you're going to have, that means it would be impossible to see. Some people still might believe this, but I certainly do not. It would be impossible to see right now with robotics advancing, AI advancing, all of these technologies advancing like they're advancing, to see global jobs, net new global jobs going up in the future, way in the future. There might be some anomalies as you build out solar infrastructure or something like that, but globally, 
it means that that deflation is going to be that there's going to be less and less jobs. And the question is, you don't buy a calculator anymore because it's on your phone. Mm. You don't buy a camera anymore. You still get it for free. Do you need the job? But we're so into, no, we can't, we need the job because we need to pay ourselves more so we can get all the things. If you actually let deflation happen at its natural course, it's like letting gravity happen. It's going to happen anyways, right? You're not going to stop it. And so if you let deflation happen at its natural course, prices would go down everywhere. You would get more abundance. Yes, some people who would want to work, would work, they would get more of the pie, prices would fall along the whole thing and you wouldn't need to be on the treadmill. It sounds almost delusional to talk like that because it's so polar opposite to the way we grew up. But if you look into the facts, that's what's going to happen anyways at some point. Unfortunately, what's going to probably happen before that, and I, this is where I implore you, every listeners and everything else, <laughs> read the book, do, do whatever you need to do to advance this message, is... Governments are going to keep printing, dividing wealth first. The wealth inequality will rise faster because of that. And if you think that you don't like the politicians now, it's going to get worse. And on that path, it's revolutions and war and then reset and then probably hyperinflation and then deflation on that path. And I just think there's just a I would love to talk about a better way you know, to transition. And so what, what does that transition look like? What are some policies that you could start bringing in? Because nothing changes overnight. I mean, this pandemic has hit go on a lot of things I thought I'd never see in this country, things like free childcare and telehealth and other things that are just extraordinarily beneficial to the community. But in the absence of that immediate personal externality that it makes people go, yes, I have to do this because otherwise I personally will get sick. In the absence of that pressure, how can we start? What are some steps we can start taking? Uh, those steps do need to be government policy, everything else, whether the current governments of the world or the next ones. When you work in a fiat system of currency and every country can game its currency. So why would China devalue their currency? To try to gain more of the jobs. And then to keep that in balance, other countries will devalue their currency as much. Or in a systematic world where right now where you have almost negative interest rates all over the world, and they're going more negative. Effectively, the governments are saying, we're going to create growth at all costs. And what that means is, if you're a CEO, would you ever sit on cash? You're actually putting into the same system the instability in the system that you don't want. Because cash is worthless. And why would a CEO sit on cash when someone else can buy their shares back and be valuable and you'd get killed? Because the government has said, I'm making your cash worthless. And if they're going to do that, then you're going to invest your cash in other assets. And those assets are going to run away in price. And then when there's no cash in the system, the government has to come in and try to bail out all of this. If you start from that and say, does that make any sense? And go, what if we built a world where cash was actually valuable? Why is that bad? I would save more. I'd have more. Prices would be going down. I could get more every year. If there was any sort of instability in the market, my cash would be valuable. I could buy more with that instability. The people that were savers would do better. And people would work less. Right? As the natural course, the technology took place. Now, it's going to happen anyways. It's just how we get there. The, the governments around the world are making it a penalty if a company sits on cash because, say, if I had $100 million and the inflation rate is, I don't know, 
next year I'll have $99 million. Right. And my shareholders will be like, what are you doing? That million dollars could be used elsewhere. So the government is forcing these companies to use that money and take it out of their company and invest it somewhere. They're pushing them to make this money go and do stuff. Yep. I've never heard it put like that. And that really just blew my mind at the moment. Is there something that is deflationary? Is there something that is an investment that does have a deflationary aspect to it? Look at every single technology company you use. You're celebrating in everything you use. You just held up your iPhone. Yeah. Right? What do you get out of that from a, every single technology company that's created the monopolies and the, that's how powerful they are? They're because they understand this thing. Google is free to you. Then they offer ways and it's free too. People think that Apple makes the apps on your phone because they get paid for advertising on the apps on their phone. That app costs almost nothing to make. Sometimes AI can make the app now. And once it's on your phone, it's digitized across the entire world. Like it's a penny times everybody and it doesn't cost anything. So that's what technology is moving so fast. So who's aggregating the technology, the monopolies that are aggregating the technology that we're using? We're celebrating deflation in everything we do. You're creating as a consumer. That's what you're using. It's extraordinary. You can see it all around us. And here's the thing. We think of it just isolated to our phones and our TV screens getting bigger, more for less all the time and everything else. But that is moving into a base layer of society. It's in every company. It's in every industry. It's, or it's moving at light speed across every industry. So we should expect that same price decline abundance in everything. The reason we're not getting it is governments are trying to stop it because they don't know what they're dealing with. So once we start hearing politicians and policymakers talking about deflation, once we start hearing them talking about you know, a future where there are no new jobs, it's just the way it will be, are these the people we should be paying more attention to? I think it's somebody that would be bold enough to say that right now and say, we should look at deflation as bad a word as we have been conditioned to believe. Instead of building a world where we're going to say, what if we're asking the wrong question? Every politician is asking the wrong question because they're asking, how do we get more jobs? And effectively, they're competing with other politicians and other governments saying the same question. What if the question in turn said, how instead do we build a society where people get all of the abundance, everything they want, without the job? Right. And I know that sounds like a really hard question, but it's actually not as hard as it seems. It forces you down a different path and you solve a different problem instead of solving the more jobs problem and manipulating currencies to do it. That's a very engineering question. I love it. <laughs> That's you looking at a, a test bench going, what if we're asking the wrong question here? What if instead of building a bigger meeting room, we build a way to bring the meeting room to the person? Boom, we've just created Zoom. Okay, Ripper. Right. You know, right. you can't right. build a meeting room. I did a thing the other day. There was 400 people on it. Uh, you can't do that. You know, you can't have an effective communication back and forth like we had the other day. No matter what kind of structure you build, no matter where you put the seats, someone's always going to be too far away for you to hear them. And to carry that forward, it's, a lot of times it's easier to see through examples. And But you just gave one. Here's another one. The bookstores thought they were competing with Amazon against book sales. But once the content is digitized, then Amazon creates the Kindle and then Audible. And the bookstores have no advantage in the Kindle because they're selling books, because it's a digitization that has created a different business entirely, and the advantage moves to the technology. And so as if it was hard enough for the bookstore just competing against Amazon book sales, 
But then most of the book sales move to Kindle and Audible, <laughs> and it's over. And so that's what's happening here. So how can we, as mums and dads, as, as people planning their future, as people finishing high school, how can we hedge ourselves against either outcome, either the one where, you know, someone smartens up and builds this, you know, kind of utopian, climate-friendly, you know, <laughs> universally beneficial society versus we're just going to keep going business as usual until the whole thing breaks and throw our hands in the air going, look, it happened because of them, you know, which is probably this is the path we're going down. Yeah. But how do we insulate ourselves against that future? First, realize that to make money, tons of money, you have to concentrate risk. If you have none and you, you concentrate all in one thing, and if you're lucky, right, timing and everything else, then you win on the other side. To protect wealth, you diversify. And so some of your listeners will be trying to build wealth, some are trying to protect wealth. As an entrepreneur, what does an entrepreneur do? They build to a different future. If they're right, they're all in everything. And if they're right, massive win, and then they diversify. And if they're wrong, they go to zero. Right now, the bets against the global currency and everything else are that binary. So if deflation happens, which it will at some point, then cash is king. And you want to save as much cash as you can so you can buy assets that collapse in price and on the other side of this. But if governments get away with what they're doing one more time, they're able to kick the can down the road one more time, then your cash is going to be worthless. And you need to lever up in debt and assets and everything else to try to protect your sort of value. And those are such binary outcomes that nobody, me too, don't have a play in. Then when you start questioning that, you say, wait, a lot of my wealth came not from my ingenuity, but because governments decided to print money and my assets rose in price. It makes you question the fairness of that, or it makes me question the fairness of that. <laughs> Um, for the people who were left out of that. What do I do? Technology companies experiencing network effects. With network effects, uh, I would encourage your listeners to look at network effects and why they're so valuable on a deeper level. But network effects, uh, the simplest example is a phone system. Right? Right. If I own a phone and I'm the only one with a phone, it's worthless. If, Osher, you add a phone, the network becomes more valuable. If somebody else does, it adds more, more yeah. and more value. So... The internet is composed of the greatest network effects, and the monopoly companies on top of it are largely consist of network effect companies, really important. So that's a place where it's a good store of value. For me personally, I'm involved in a whole bunch of technology companies where my time and great entrepreneurs can make a, a real difference. So I'm time investor in a, quite a number of different technology companies. And then I have money in Bitcoin because I think that at some point people are going to realize that the currency has become worthless and there's going to be this race to Bitcoin and it could be a new reserve currency that helps move this transition. I uh, could do three straight hours on cryptocurrency with you because I find it, <laughs> I find it extraordinary, and I'm sure people will have an idea of what cryptocurrency is. There was a big hubbub about it a few years back, but it is written to the code of it that less and less of it gets made every time it has a print run. So unlike 
fiat currency, unlike the the plastic money or the t- the pay wave, the money in our bank accounts, where there's just they just print more of it, and essentially to borrow from what you see earlier, they're essentially just pumping more air into the atmosphere to the point where it'll be so abundant. It's what's the point of it, all right? And you hear these horrible stories about countries in Africa or, or Venezuela, people going to buy a loaf of bread with a wheelbarrow full of cash. Yep. You know, it's horrifying. That's someone's life savings. That's, that's coming at some point. It's someone's life savings, but right now they're hungry. And to solve that problem of their hungry, they're taking a wheelbarrow full of cash because that's that's all they got, right? Yep. But the idea of cryptocurrency, whether it be a Bitcoin or any any other cryptocurrency, is that it built into it. It makes less and less of it every time. So essentially, it gets more valuable as it goes. And eventually, there'll be no more. There'll only be so much of it forever. They'll never be able to print any more of it. So it's kind of protected from what you're talking about, from the inflation. So that, that's very interesting. That is, I, I would encourage people to go and scratch on that a little bit. I do want to talk to you a bit about the, the philosophy a lot behind what you talked about. You mentioned something earlier, and because you come at this, and you mentioned it at the very start of this, that you come at it from a bit of an engineering brain of like test, iterate, adjust, to redeploy, test, iterate, adjust, redeploy. That loop, that kind of development loop. You mentioned love and connection. And that people and societies seek love and connection, either to avoid a victim mentality or to avoid the workaholic mentality. It seems to me that this is not just some sort of airy-fairy, I own a Himalayan salt lamp, you know, I've got patchouli oil burning on the oil burner. This is an actual need of a human being, just as much as sunlight, air, food. And that you look at it like that, and that a society and an economy has to have that in order to function correctly. If you understand personal needs and you understand that what people go through, I'll tell people exactly what I think in a, the most loving way because I can't spend time with somebody that I can't tell them or they tell me. And we learn faster as a result of that. But yeah, it's a basic need. In fact, a lot of the other things in our life that we consider important go through that filter first, love and belonging. And you could say it's belonging, but love is at the core of that. We're a social creature. We need to matter to others. We need to impact others. We tell ourselves all these different stories to try to get to that. And they're largely just stories that we try to get to that. And so I've known people on their deathbed, billionaires on their deathbed, that would have given everything up for the thing they thought the money would buy them. And that's profoundly sad to see somebody that the external validation that they were trying to get from everybody was pushing away the thing they wanted most, but they couldn't see it. And so, yeah, I think it's essentially a basic human need. We're species that, that groups, we need social connection, and we look for that everywhere. It's why it's actually easy to divide people too, because they're so desperate to belong. You can make them to belong by dividing people, but the most powerful people, long-term powerful people, are uniters. They make other people better and they unite people. Short term, it is powerful. It's seductively powerful to say, hey, Osher, it's you and me. We know this. Those terrible politicians, they know nothing. It's so seductive. And so you can get people to bite, but it's not long-term beneficial. No, they're humans just like us, and they think they're doing the right thing based on the information they've got, as am I. Exactly. Exactly. That's what we're all doing. There's a lot that I don't know. I'm just, you know, sometimes I'm just talking out of my ass, but, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm basing it upon, you know. Anyway, do you feel that 
the economic model and the the basis, I guess, of capitalism that has got us to this point in life has largely ignored that need for connection. And do you see in order for us to have a future as a species on this planet, we have to start factoring in that love and connection and togetherness into whatever model brings us from this point? So it's funny. You would think that I'm some of this talk that I'm against capitalism or any structure and everything else. And I'm not. I'm against warping capitalism. And so capitalism would work really well if you didn't say crony capitalism and, and socialize the losses. It, it would work really well. But I do believe that this is a big piece of people being enlightened and moving to the next level. Some of the lessons I learned of the way you think it's all about you. I need to do more and more and more and more. I, and I was chasing the same thing. The more people, the more I'm this person, the more people will react and they'll think I'm this person. And then you get good at that. And more people tell you how good you are. And you're all of a sudden on this treadmill that you think, wow, you love it. Like it feels so good. And so you do more of those things that people are reinforcing that you're, that you're at it without even realizing. And it took the loss of my brother, one of my best friends, to realize it's really not about me. It's about the impact I make on other people is what life is about and everything else. And so those things, I could walk out the street and get hit by a truck tomorrow, but did I leave an impact on other people and everything else through every minute that I spent on, on this earth? I don't know if everybody's going to think that way and everything else, but it's the way I think. To hear someone like you who has, as you mentioned before, you exited a company that you founded with zero. You made a decision on integrity. To hear someone like you who had everything that we've been told in the palm of his hand and went, no, that's not what matters. It's profound, man, because... Thanks. In the game that we've all been told, you know, this is the game. You get past the ball, you need to put it through that goal, that hoop, across that line, whatever it is. Then you've won. Then you've won. You are on the other side of the try line or touchdown line or whatever game you want to play. And you went, actually, no. <laughs> Have you ever seen the movie It's a Wonderful Life? Yes, of course. Every Christmas. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah, every Christmas. It's one of my favorite but, movies. I couldn't believe what came back. From me walking away, I could not believe. Like the, uh, it, it might make me cry on this show. Within walking away, and people, most people didn't know I walked away with zero. But I had three calls from different people who didn't know each other within a couple hours, and three different people said, "Jeff, I'm going to wire a hundred thousand dollars to your bank account. You never have to pay me back. Don't tell your wife." And I just went, "Who am I to deserve this?" And so what came after me leaving, the abundance everywhere, it was so staggering. It was the best decision I uh, could have ever, uh, ever made. It just reinforced everything that I believe in. What would you say to people who are right now at a point in their life, whether it be that the industry that they're in, like, for example, I do a lot of work, I work in television and live performance and things like that. There's a lot of people whose industry has vanished, might never recover. They're at this crossroads of their life. They're probably quite afraid. What would you say to them about taking a leap right now? So first, when you're afraid, you make bad decisions. You're shut down. It's really hard to make good decisions. So that's everybody. And so if you have anxiety and you're coming in and you're in that mode, it's going to be hard to make a really good decision. So I would start with what do you really need? 
when I left Bill Direct, what I said to my wife is, my integrity is more important. And we made, by the way, we sold our house to fund the business. So I didn't know how I'd make rent at the end of the month. We had three small children. And what I realized with her, with everyone around me, I have everything I need. I have everything I need. If I looked at where I am in the world, even with nothing, or almost nothing, I could go to other places in the world and feel like I could live in I had everything that I really wanted. If you start there and then say, then you actually can, instead of a fear-based decision, you realize, wow, I have options. Now what do I want to do? Right? And today, in a world that's changing radically fast, there are crazy opportunities. I know we're talking about the global thing and what's happening, but there are so many opportunities to use technology, to be able to help people, to everything else. Because when people are feeling pain, that's what the entrepreneurs see. Why does it look like that? Those people are feeling pain. How do I solve that and create something better? So there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of millions of opportunities like that right now. So are you saying that if you're in that point where you are afraid, understand that that fear is causing you to see the world in a particular way and choose things you may not understand, you have other choices? That's why I use that victim mentality, right? So that person doesn't see that they're pushing away the thing they want most. Just like in business, the Kodak doesn't see the thing that's the, the most valuable thing, but it ha it's way more prevalent in our lives. But we don't look inward enough and everything else and start from a root and say, what do we really need? What do we really need to be happy? Like, we don't really need much to be happy. Love of the people around you. And if you're not getting that, try a different way, right? <laughs> don't look at around you because you choose the people around you. Say, uh, say, oh, it might be me. So if you're not getting that, start there. <laughs> um, and build back up the things that are really important. Jeff, I came for the nerdy economics talk and I stayed for the brilliant brilliant philosophical guidance. I could not be more grateful for your time today. I know you're an extraordinarily busy man that you made time and rescheduled this one once or twice. So I'm very grateful, mate. You're an absolute legend, buddy. Thank you so, so, so much for spending time with me today. This has been awesome. Awesome. You are the best. I hope you have a great summer, brother. Thank you so much for your time, mate. That was Jeff Booth. Uh, you can find Jeff online. He's on Twitter, Jeff Booth, J-E-F-F-B-O-T-H. His book is called The Price of Tomorrow, Why Deflation is the Key to an Abundant Future. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope you do share it with someone who might get a kick out of it. I know it was a, a bit of a nerdy one, but I felt that the concept was something that very important. I felt it was something that we all need to kind of get our heads around because a version of it or a version of what we were talking about is definitely in our future. And we need to kind of, I guess, you know, grasp the concept sooner than later so it doesn't sneak up on us, I guess. Uh, Jeff's got some real interesting articles online that I would encourage you to check out. Thanks, just before I go, thanks to everybody that did buy the book this week. Back after the break, you can find it out. It's out now. You can buy it at osherginsberg.com. I'm really grateful to everybody that has already bought the book. Thank you so much. It means the world to me. I can't wait to hear what you think of the chapter that Audrey wrote. Send us your email at gmail. Dot com is where you can find me. All right, I better jet. It's baby bath time, which, as you know, 
is the fucking best time. So I've got to go because it's too good. Thanks very much to Andy who cut this episode up. Thanks to Rachel who produced the whole thing. Thank you, Mike Mills, for the music and Hayley Van Spania for running all the socials this week. Send me a photo of what you're looking at while you're listening to this. You can tag me on Instagram. It's fine. Hayley will make sure I see it. Um, the book's out now. i got a jet. Thank you so much for listening. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 